Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Fascinating Nouns. We are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Together we arrive at this curious nexus point and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, and all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Today, episode 50, ho! This is a big episode, both physically and metaphorically. It is large in megabyte size, it is large in time-wise. We have almost a double episode, and it is also big because it represents a major, major interview with one of my, I don't want to say teen idols, but in my formidable years, I was hooked on a little, a little book series called Lone Wolf. And today, after several years of chasing this man down, I have him on the show, Mr. Joe Deaver. He was so generous with his time that you're going to get extra footage, including, uh, if you don't know much about his story, Listen to the bonus footage about the world of Magnamund, and you will, I dare you to tell me and show me how this is not as incredible of a world as anything George R.R. Martin has come up with, Tolkien, Harry Potter. This is an incredible fantasy world, and not only has he, did he break ground with this, he had, what he did is he, he created right on the edge of this game book generation. Now, for those of you who don't know, in the 80s and 90s, there was this phenomenon, choose-your-own-adventure type books. Uh, choose-your-own-adventure books were basically a book where you could decide and control the storyline. Very fun way. At the end of every passage, you will have a choice, and you would turn to that page in the book and continue the story as if you'd made that choice. Basically, parallel dimensions in book form. The next step beyond that, for nerds like me, we wanted to really immerse ourselves in this world and create a character that grew with us as books moved along. There were competitors called Fighting Fantasy, but these weren't serialized. So basically you would take on um, you know, a samurai world or a, or a knight in shining armor going into a dangerous castle or whatever, and you would start out, have stats, and again, very similar to Choose Your Own Adventure books, you would, you would start the quest, you would have some supplies, and then the adventure of the book would take you a million different ways and you could read the books over and over again. What Joe Deaver did is he created Lone Wolf. And we're going to get into how and why and all that stuff in a minute. But what that did is it created a character that you played, that you had stats for, who gained levels and stats and, and, and stats increased every level, or, I'm sorry, every book. And he had all kinds of supplies, things he found along the way, storylines that went 20 books deep. People he met would come up later on. This whole world that existed in these books, books that you guided the adventure for. This was amazing for a kid who was 8, 9, 10. Um, it, just, it just opened up your mind. In my humble opinion, I think it opened up your mind in a way that books didn't. Books, in a sense, are kind of a passive medium, but this you were active. You were actually creating your story based on the options that were presented to you. If you can't tell, I really like these books. And I am honored to have Joe on the program today. And we are going to get into all of this stuff, the entire world. And if you're not familiar, like I said, there is a bonus episode where you can learn about this particular mythology, which is in fact different than anything you'll ever hear. 
Uh, and plus, this is my 50th episode, and I know I mentioned that already, but that is a big milestone for me. And I do want to point out here that, very importantly, much like Joe was my 50th episode, I was his 5,000th friend on Facebook, and I am not kidding you. That is true. So that's a mouthful. Let's get into this whole thing. Enough jibber-jabber. You gotta, gotta meet this guy, Joe Deaver. So let's just get right into this. Well, Mr. Deaver, I want to thank you so much for being on the program today. This is, this is an incredible opportunity. It's my pleasure. I'm ready, Dan. Thanks. Well, let's, you know, a lot of people aren't going to know what you do. So let's, why don't we start with the really important stuff first? Is that okay? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So uh, you were a sound engineer for Virgin. Is that true? <laughs> Gosh, yeah. We're going back. <laughs> we are going back into the deep and distant past now, yes. aren't we? Yes. Let's um, uh, tell me about all this. All right. Now, this is a time when probably most of your listeners weren't born. Okay, so we're going back into the late 80s. Uh, sorry, late 70s. Okay. And, um, yeah, I got a gig at Virgin Records. Now, Virgin Records was tiny at the time. Um, it had two studios. But it had started with a hugely successful act. Mike Oldfield and Tubular Bells had broken all records worldwide. and given them a lot of money to uh, establish themselves. So I joined them... Um, I think it was about 79-ish. Let me think. may have been a little bit earlier, 78, something like that. Okay. Um, Yeah, and um, I got the gig, basically. I I started my career as a recording engineer, uh, sorry, as a session musician. And uh, that was back in 76. And this was at a time where there was a major transition going on between sort of live orchestras and studio uh, sessions mm-hmm. um over to keyboard orientated stuff so the keyboards were taking over it sure did <laughs> <laughs> you could say that. um now this i saw the writing on the wall you could say uh-huh. and i thought no if i'm going to progress in this industry i need to be on the other side of the desk <laughs> um so i kind of made that decision you were a, ba- a bass player right that's correct yes yeah, yeah. and uh i that string bass as well as electric Um, And I had a sort of steady nine-to-five job with a uh, studio in London called Pi Studios. They used to do the backing tracks for sort of well-known singers, um, solo acts, um, even people like Andy Williams, if you can remember that far back. Mm -hmm. Not that I ever got to see them. I just simply went in, read the dots, played the stuff, took my check, went home. (laughs) (laughs) That was the deal, and it was all very nice. Yeah. Um, But like I say, it was a huge uh, transition going on in the music industry at that time and i decided yeah i need to be on the other side of the desk as a recording engineer and i started off as a tape op which is an obsolete profession nowadays mm-hmm. as everything's digital but I, that involved um taking charge of the physical recording <clears throat> onto big uh, analog tapes and then cutting those tapes up literally cutting the tapes up with a razor blade would you oh my. yeah i do remember That's that it's done mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. remember those i do old days um and then i i sort of mastered the desk by doing that work and working closely with recording engineers um and like i said i got the gig at virgin when they were just starting and i split my time between their townhouse studios which were in shepherd's bush which is west london and uh, their Manor Studios, which is out near Oxford. And um, it was during that time, 
uh, or prior to that time, I'd all been running my own sort of uh, war games campaigns. Okay. Um, I'd discovered D&D um, on a trip to the States. Actually, to be more accurate, my time at Virgin was, it must have been at uh, the beginning of 77, because I was in L.A. in April 77. That's when I discovered uh, D&D and its sort of early guys. Um, probably second edition. The original version came out in 74 in pamphlet form. So it probably was the first box set. Holy cow. It came out in 70. I don't think I realized that. It came out in 74. So early. Yeah, so oh, early. Oh, my God. Okay. And um, I'd been running a sort of war game orientated um, campaign tabletop with friends for a couple of years. I'd created Magnum back in 76, which is the world that became the world of Lone Wolf. Mm-hmm. Um, and then D&D changed everything for me. Uh, until then, funny enough, I've been playing uh, Chainmail, which was um, uh, also by Gygax. And it was his name on the box that drew me to buying the thing. I remember it now. It's a tiny little game shop in in uh, Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. In LA. Yeah. Uh, I live down the street from there. You know it. Yeah. It, well, it's definitely not there now. I'm nope. Sure <laughs> well, and just for the listeners, so Chainmail is um, a set of rules for wargaming, which is basically miniatures that you use to set up and reenact or, re- or create your own battles between armies, That's- correct? That's absolutely correct, yeah. And Gary, That's basically what it is. And Gary Gygax, who created that, is also the creator of D&D, Dungeons & Dragons. Exactly. There's the connection. There you go. Um, and I'd used uh, Chainmail as my um, – I'd run a series of battles, so it was a campaign, uh, wargaming campaign. And I'd been looking to introduce fantasy into it because it was a fantasy world. Now, this is back in a time where role-playing, as we know, it didn't exist. D&D you know, just appeared on the scene. And like I say, I first discovered it when I was in LA in 77. Um, and that was a huge eureka moment for me, going in and reading the first couple of books. It changed everything. Mm-hmm. And so I introduced my sort of house rules version of it into this campaign. And then that, it, that evolved um, into a full D&D campaign running within this game world. So, um, and I continued that for the next few years, really run up until about 82 so 77 to 82, I ran a very long campaign based in Magnament, documented it thoroughly, and that became the basis for Lone Wolf's World. Um, yeah, that's how it started. So now, when you were creating this world, mm. where did it come from? I mean, like, where, like were you drawing off different <laughs> things? Uh, yes. It, it, I mean, obviously the, it came from your brain, but I, you know, it, I was going to, yeah, I was tempted to answer <laughs> the office, You've already jumped in there. <laughs> it really came from the map. Um, now, I'd, I'd been a big fantasy fan um, in my sort of early teenage years and uh, reading a lot of uh, Moorcock and uh, Mervyn Peake and especially Michael uh, Moorcock, who was a big influence on me. And so I stoked up my subconscious with an awful lot of fantasy. And uh, my hobby was, and it still is, a tabletop wargaming. So um, you can see how the two sort of came together in the late 70s. Mm -hmm. Um, And really, I look on D&D as the toolkit I needed in order to fully develop my fantasy world. But the initial kickoff point was the maps. So I started by drawing the huge world map. Um, and in doing that, it's uh, as anybody who's drawn fantasy maps will know, it just creates scenarios. 
as you're creating the world, um, the scenarios seem to write themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, and I pretty much established that world by 77. And then since then, I, uh, to date, I've been steadily adding to it and sort of developing it further. Um, Lone Wolf is the, obviously the main character of the book series, uh, for which I'm best known, which is Lone Wolf. And Lone Wolf as a character didn't exist in my campaigns. It wasn't, although the Kai Lords, of which he is a part, certainly did. Um, it wasn't until later that I decided to create a specific character, um, for the game books. And they were first published in 84. Oh, so that's interesting. So this wasn't like your character. This is a guy who I just assumed like he was a character you played in your D and D campaign, and you wanted to make him, you know, immortalize him in a way. Uh, no, it came it came about slightly differently. Um, I had the Kai Lords as a uh, warrior class within my own D and D version. Um, but if uh, if you're familiar with the game books, and certainly anybody who's listening is familiar with Lone Wolf, knows that the series starts with the massacre of the Kai. Mm-hmm. And you're the only one left, hence the name Lone Wolf. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, not to jump ahead, because I want to get to the game book specifically, and I don't want to throw okay. anyone off. But my favorite part of the books <laughs> is that you start out as Silent Wolf. This massacre happens. You're getting firewood. You hit your head. You're a total klutz. You fall down. You're knocked yeah. out. And then when you wake up, everyone's dead, and you're the last one. Like it's like by default, yeah. yeah. By default, the, you know, the clumsiest guy on the lowest end of the totem pole is the guy who's in charge of saving everyone. You know, mm. it's, it's a great beginning. It is, and a lot of you know, a lot of uh, readers sort of identified with that. Um, <laughs> I, know I, did. I know I did. Say no more. Um, but the wonderful thing is that uh, the character class of the Kylords have potential. They're they're undeveloped. And okay. even this sort of, as you well put it, the lower rank on the totem pole had the potential to become um, something very special indeed. And given the unusual circumstances that he finds himself in, and he's 15 years old when the saga starts, um, he develops his innate powers um, through necessity in order to survive. Mm-hmm. And... There are, he develops as a character as well. At first, he's, you know, he's naive. He certainly loses his naivety by the end of book one. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he starts, be, then he starts to appreciate his moral, um, purpose in the, in his world and the importance of it. And he rises to it. So it's a kind of an, an awakening. Um, and the interesting thing which you touched on is that it was really recognized by all the readers and internationally. I used to get the same sort of letters from Argentina as I did from Australia, from Austria. Mm-hmm. And uh, as even before we get to be in the uh, list, <laughs> but really everywhere. And they all cited the same thing that they just felt such empathy with the character. Yeah, I think you really hit a nerve. I mean, this is, it's one of those things, like, this is the definition of lightning in a bottle, in a way. But, you know, it's not, if your talent came around at a different time, or you went a different way, I don't know that these books would be as popular. And this is just my personal opinion. I think you had a brilliant idea. They came along when these game books were just, I mean, they hit so hard in the 80s. I mean, there were so many different types of books. And I think it started out being popular, and I think just what you're talking about, the fact that it just resonated with the right people at the right time in the right medium, 
I mean, these things just exploded. It was incredible. It was. It was a fantastic time. Uh, and, you know, I look back on it very fondly. Um, you're quite right. I had the right idea in the right place at the right time and enough common sense to make good use of it. <laughs> <laughs> a valuable ingredient, a very misunderstood valuable ingredient. You know? Yeah, it's, it's all well and good having the stars align on you favorably. <laughs> if, you, if you just stand back and go, well, awesome. It's, <laughs> that's not really it, is it? You're not really going to nope. do much with that. Uh, no, I was. it was right place, right time, and enough common sense to know that I needed to do something about it but the second eureka moment really was the fact when i realized what i had and what i needed to do with it um, up until then i'd been playing with the idea of producing it as a role-playing game really a sort of an english version of D, &D uh, or more accurately more uh, an english version of runequest mm. with its own world setting okay. um, and then it struck me that there are that there were basically a lot more bookshops than game shops in the world Definitely. And really, I should be doing this as a solo campaign um, for the very good reason that it had never been done before. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea of creating a, a saga where the reader could carry their experience over from book to book, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is the core of role playing. Um, and I had a, a major advantage. I'd already done seven years' work on the world. So I had a hugely developed world mm -hmm. and a very clear vision for that world. And so when I started writing, I really didn't have to make anything up as I went along. I had a very clear idea of what, you know, what it consisted of, um, which gave me the luxury of being able to cherry pick what I put into the stories, what mm. information I fed to the reader. Right. Yeah. And, um, and so bearing in mind that it was from the perspective of a 15-year-old, I didn't throw in everything all at once. There was no info dump going on. And... Uh, and the readers really took to that because I could tease them, if you like. I could put in hints and uh, what I used to call acorns. I could drop acorns along the path and they'd grow into trees further down the saga. So something they'd discover in, say, book two or book three came to fruition in book eight or book nine. Mm -hmm. And then they had their own eureka moment thinking, my, wow, this is fantastic. I never realized it would lead to that. And... Um, and along with that goes the fact they realized that the author had already planned it because, you know, you can't backtrack and rewrite book two to insert something you've forgotten. Right. Uh, but you bring up a good point here. Actually, you just I just went on like a spur in my brain on three different questions. But what you're talking about, that is what's brilliant about your books. And, you know, spoiler alert to anyone out here, we're going to talk about the mythology in a little bit. But, you know, like, for example... I guess my question to you is how can you make sure that those little acorns are found when you're doing a choose-your-own-adventure book? For example, in the first book, if you take the correct route, you'll meet Banadin, who's – am I saying that name correctly? I don't know if I'm saying any of these names correctly. Banadin. Yeah, Banadin. You'll meet him who's a young magician similar to you, not to go into too much detail, but you meet him, and he becomes a reoccurring character. Which yeah. is really cool if you've met him in the first book, then you realize, oh, man, this is great. Like he shows up in these other books and your relationship with him grows and you can rely on him and, you know, all that. But if you mm -hmm. don't meet him in the first book, then his appearance, and I think the fifth book, is a little different, you know? Yes, it, absolutely it is, yeah. Um, I, I have to take that into account. So uh, when you do meet him in book five, if you've not played book two, you get a different introduction to him. You, oh, you don't. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you so, get to say it whether you've met him before, which is also a really cool aspect. I mean, this this is well, – let's get to the game books in a second because one thing sure. I want to say is what is – I think what really struck a chord with me with these books at that time is that, like you said, 
the Eureka moment was D&D. And I know being a nerd growing up, for some reason, uh, people loved adding role-playing aspects to various different games. Like, there were lots of games that I played with friends in my neighborhood, and we just added a role-playing aspect to it. And the reason we did that is we, we had, like, one game we loved to play. And after a while, that game got boring to play just by the rules. So what it was fantasy-based. So what you could do is add the ability to carry over your ability, skills, you know, weapons, whatever, to the next game, which then made the next game a little bit different. So basically, mm-hmm. you're just serializing your experience. Yeah. And I think that that's what makes this such a big hit. And that's I love serialized. I love comic books. I love serialized TV shows and all that stuff. And I think that's really why this hit. Is it, what do you think about that? Well, it's, it, your experience is exactly my experience in a slightly different way. I, I came to that realization when I was creating the character and um, understood that I was in a unique position to really do something with it. Um, when, I, when I was first signed back in 83, I think it was, this, the first contract was drawn up, um, I already had a clear idea of what the first 12 books were going to be. And then by the time I reached... Um, book six or book seven, I knew what the books, what the stories was going to were going to be uh, from eleven to twenty. So I had planned well ahead, and that enabled me to keep up this uh, standard of introducing um, the little acorns, as I describe them, that uh, developed as the story progressed and kept the readers enthralled. Quite frankly, you know, they mm-hmm. that's one aspect they really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, that things weren't thrown in for effect. They were actually for a distinct purpose. Uh, and I didn't need to reveal exactly what that purpose was when I introduced them. Right. But it came to light later on in the series. So it it enhanced their experience of that serial read. And um, I can remember from all the fan mail I was getting, the anticipation of the next book in the series was incredible. <laughs> it was incredible. <laughs> the stories out of people, you know, that would go into the, you know, lived in the sticks or would go into the city every Saturday in the hope of finding the new book. <laughs> it's one of the series. Not obviously, you know, not knowing how publishing works. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, you're exactly right. I mean, I remember. So these, I mean, I'm one of the kids who this hit right when I was, you know, eight or nine or whatever. And I remember yeah. going to like, I lived in the Midwest, and so going into a Jewel Osco. And I remember I just found book eleven. Like I was a kid, I didn't know how publishing worked. And I just remember looking at the books. Like I would always go there in the hopes that like a book would show up, right? Yeah. And I remember, <laughs> I remember like book eleven, Prisoners of Time. I remember being there, and I remember that I went for some reason went with my one of my neighbors to the store with them and they bought me the book. I remember, you know, I remember how I got every book and that was one of the weirdest ways to be introduced, but I totally relate to that story. You know, when you do, when yeah. you're a kid, you don't know anything about timelines and deadlines and manuscripts and you know, any of that stuff. No, no it's the magic is just it's it's, magic. You know, everything. Man. It's yeah, totally everything. magic. You came into the series quite late at 11. Oh, um, did I, what was it geared for? Well, it, it, um, book one came out in the States in 85. Yeah. Summer of 85. Well, uh, I was well on my way by book 11. Like, I was on book 11. So I think, like, I've, I think maybe seven or eight was being published when I was currently reading them. I don't remember exactly how old I was when I found them. I remember the first book I found was book four. And that was, oh, I see. And okay. That, that was no, in that the library. Sense. So that was, so someone showed me the book. 
and they didn't teach me the rules correctly. Um, but I remember they showed me the book, and it was you know it had like a plastic cover on it because they were all paperback. So someone had reinforced the cover with plastic. And I remember pulling it off the shelves, and they showed me the book, and like that was it for me. But I started in book four, whatever that means. Well, no, but yes, that's that's great. You're in the basic series. Then books one to five are the sort of basic series. Yeah, that get you up to the to the to the rank of Kai Master. Yes. Um, so starting in four is is good. No doubt you you know you were keen to find out what happened before. Definitely. <laughs> and, yeah, I went back and checked out one, two, and three. Yeah. Well, the one thing uh, I want to say really quickly right here is I think the what you did that was so great is that you know there are a lot of when we talk about serialization, a lot of the popular shows that are on TV that do a similar thing, Lost and Heroes. I'm going to use those as examples. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but yeah, they had great seasons and they had great ideas. But as the way TV works is you have to produce so much so quickly, there wasn't a back world to, to pull from. So they're just making it up as they go along, and it just doesn't work because they aren't connecting everything. Not only did you create the world for seven years, but you had people in it, living in it, breathing in it. And it was a real thing that you got to experiment with for seven years before you wrote the books, right? Absolutely. What an yeah, advantage. Absolutely. Huge advantage, yeah. Yeah. Um... And it was a labor of love. I was doing it as my hobby. I, you know, really loved doing it. I still love doing it. And uh, put me in a unique position. And what you've just said really um, reinforces what I said earlier about creating the world and being confident within it and not having to show my hand all at once. <clears throat> so I could pace um, the information that I was giving accordingly. Um, and it became very obvious to the readers that, you know, this was a very detailed world um, that held together. It wasn't, it didn't fall into the trap you just described. Mm -hmm. um, now, very few people are, you know, in a position where they can do that amount of background research and work and preparation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that is true. Especially in television. <laughs> right. And, and so these worlds, you said you're still building on them. So does it end? I mean, is the planet, I mean, I don't, is it finite? You know, like, I guess planet's the wrong word, but is this world end and like loop back on itself like the Earth at some point? <laughs> well, this could be the spoiler of all time. This could be the mother of all Great, spoilers. Great, let's do it exclusively <laughs> on my show. Spoiler, Joe Deaver, give me end? with it. This Magnum and then. Yeah. I can't, I can't, can't. You absolutely that. can. You absolutely <laughs> can't do that. Because I'm in a very strange position now, which is yeah. wonderful, quite frankly. I'm writing the end of the saga. I so, You know, I've been doing this for 30 years, yeah. and I'm writing book 30 now of 32 books. Um, book 29 comes out in November okay. and it's been a long wait I must admit I've kept my readers waiting a too, better part 17 yeah, years it's too, long. it's too long it is way too long yeah. but I've been busy in the interim we're not so, happy uh, we're not happy I have a good excuse <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to love 29 I'm so happy with it uh, really it, it's great so um, now I'm pulling together all the loose ends as it were um, and preparing the finale the grand finale and it's really going to be something special and uh i can say that knowing what is i'm so ex i'm jittering here with excitement <laughs> take it I easy know what, joe take it easy i i know what i'm going to be putting into the last two books and it's quite amazing stuff hey so it's just uh, it's just the two of us what are you putting into that last book there joe? i'm not putting it uh, nothing i can reveal because <laughs> it would be a real real spoiler now there's a huge fan base okay that's Definitely. grown up over the years and uh there's been a huge amount of speculation on the fan sites and the like, and I'm very pleased to say that none of them have come close to the ending. That's good. Yeah, it's wonderful. That's great. So, 
yeah, they've all, you know, made their suggestions, but they're a bit way off the mark. I hope so. And, um, which I'm delighted with because the, <laughs> the <laughs> obvious for obvious. You reasons. tricked everyone. Yeah, I'd be happy too. Well, because the ending has is got a nice, uh, it rounds off everything very nicely, and it touches back to the beginning of the saga as well. Hmm. And um, it's huge for me. It's hugely satisfying. And if that's the case, then the fans are going to be delighted when they f- when the final um, revelation is uh, unfolded at the end. Can I make a uh, can I make a prediction? Go ahead. Yeah. So the entire series, for, it starts off with the Kai massacre. And, and yes. Lone Wolf comes and he learns his skills, finds different artifacts along the way to rebuild the Kai. My mm. guess is um, either he destroys the gods of the world or he creates this whole new order of Kai. They all get massacred again. Another klutzy young boy falls and hits his head and we start the whole series over again. Uh, no. Am I close, percentage-wise? <laughs> not even. Not even in the same galaxy. <laughs> so, uh, don't feel bad That's about right. that. All right. You're in good company. That's a good several, That's a good there story. are hundreds of thousands of fans that are in the same situation. Well, it's good that you're uh, tricking people. Well, it's, it's not a, a trick. You know, it's not really a trick. It's, yeah. it, 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 I've had the ending in mind for several years, so I'm oh, working good. towards it. And... Um, Something you touched on in your suggestion, though, the new Kai order, yeah. it's already come to pass. Mm-hmm. In books um, 21 through to 28, uh, you're playing a new order Kai. Now, the reason for this is that Lone Wolf has pretty much attained superhero status by book 20. Mm-hmm. And there's not an awful lot of challenge left for him on the planet. Mm-hmm. So what occurs is that he starts a new, a separate order, um, the Kai new order and um, establishes that in the southern part of the world, in the southern continent. And you are a grandmaster of the new order, and you play as that new character. Or else you switch and, it up. Oh, yeah, so Lone Wolf becomes your sort of um, mission control, really. He's, he's the guy who sets the tasks. And you get to play as one of his sort of uh, key disciples, if you like. Well, that's and, good. Now, I'm, uh, I'm in America. It's a different perspective. Now, I'm in America, so we only, I only have book 20. So all the stuff you're talking about, I don't even have access to. No, this is true. Because um, as you touched on, uh, books 21 onwards weren't published in the States. Um, but an awful lot of American readers have imported them. <laughs> Illegally or legally? <laughs> as you can imagine. Um, but the something that will be nice to know for your listeners who are fair, perhaps new to Lone Wolf, is that in uh, in the year two thousand, the millennium? Um, I gave my American uh, fan club, which is called Project Aeon. Now that's A O N, and Aeon is the universe in which mm-hmm. the world is. The worlds are set. So Project Aeon, um, I gave them the permission to publish my stuff for free on the internet. That's incredible. Well, it was Why yeah. Why do that? That seems like uh, a bad that's financial the best move. Kind of guy I am. <laughs> No, you're a hell of a guy, but doesn't that, I guess it doesn't. You've made all the money on those anyway, and it gets people interested in the new stuff, right? Yeah, my take on it was that uh, it needed the it needed oxygen to survive. Mm-hmm. It needed oxygen and publicity to survive. True, and really, it was truly an altruistic act on my behalf. I had no fancy sort of you know marketing plans for it so at all. Don't be so humble, Joe. Don't be so humble. <laughs> this is the truth. Yeah. But the curious thing is, back in two thousand, everybody you know. Everybody in the industry looked at me and said, you're crazy. You're giving it all away. This is just insanity. Mm-hmm. Um, but what came to pass was um, 
I got an incredible amount of goodwill for doing that um, because a lot of fans, especially American fans, were having difficulty getting books, missing books, ones that mm-hmm. they hadn't been able to get a hold of. And now they have the opportunity uh, to download and read them at their leisure. So that filled in the gaps for them. The second thing that came about was that when Project Aeon put it on the web, um, they, need, they made digitized versions of it. Um, now, bear in mind, the original books were written in a pre-computer age. Um, first draft was longhand, second draft was typewritten, oh. and they hadn't been transferred into a digital format. Mm-hmm. So um, they set about doing that. Suddenly I had digitized versions, which later, you know, perhaps a decade later, became very useful when I wanted to publish those or when you know, other projects came up and needed digitized versions of it. Right. So it saves me having to type in perhaps 12 books from scratch. <laughs> yeah, and that's no mean feat. You know, that's know. 350 pages each. That's no mean feat. Right. So that was the second uh, benefit that I got from it. Um, the third benefit, by keeping it alive, was that an awful lot of companies came along when they saw the resurgence of Lone Wolf. Mm-hmm which was in the early, two, it was about 2002 when it sort of got back on track. Um, i just interject here slightly that um, the whole thing sort of plateaued out around 96 and then game books went out of fashion. Mm-hmm. Publishers thought, oh, it's the end of our great run. We're going to turn, it's vampires, it's their turn. We'll go, we'll go with that. <laughs> right. All right, so, but the, the key thing was the advent and the rise of console gaming. Ah. So when you look at 95, 96, you're looking at Sony PlayStation yep. uh, and Nintendos and you know the rise of console gaming. Very true. And that, over, that became where, that's where the, the spend went. That's where the, you know, the dollars were being spent and not on books. Books by then were very much going out of fashion. Publish, you know, publishing is, was shrinking. Mm-hmm. The actual industry was shrinking. So... Um, what I did basically was to, you know, um, go with my uh, motto, which is <laughs> adapt and survive. Mm-hmm. So I started uh, designing computer games and working with Sony on PlayStation One games. You can't beat them, join them. Well, yeah, but uh, it was another, <laughs> it was another eureka moment, really, because mm-hmm. I realised that the skills I'd acquired by writing second person present tense mm-hmm. text, which is what. You'll find in the game book, second person is you know, me telling you what's happening to you. And present tense, you know, it's happening now. So it's a very exciting uh, text to read. You know, it's happening to you and you've got to make a decision now as to how you're going to resolve a situation. That's true of um, role-playing games for computers. Uh, they very much are, you know, you having to make decisions. So um, the scripting of it I found very easy. Um, and I've got an awful lot of work doing that. Um, over that period. But while I was working on the computer games, um, this resurgence came along. And so Lone Wolf um, came around again in a role-playing game format. And um, also, mainly in Europe, um, the book started selling again very strongly. So um, that's kind of what happened in that interim period. Now, I'd already made the decision in 2000 to basically put all my make all my stuff available for free. That takes time. It took time for Project Aeon to translate and prepare everything. And it took them 15 years to do that. So it was only uh, earlier this year that they completed all the 28 books. And um, 
they've done a fantastic job. So to bring you back to my point, um, if people are listening to this podcast and are intrigued by Lone Wolf, then I suggest you check out Project Aeon. Just simply Google Project Aeon and it will take you there. And I'll have links on my page. Lovely. Yeah. Um, and from there, go to the book section and you can download pretty much everything I've written. Um, not just Lone Wolf, all the other sub-series as well. And they've created an incredible archive that has, you know, it has everything I've done in there, the maps, the notes, even um, sort of magazine articles from the 80s. They're all reproduced there. <laughs> That's crazy. It's, it's an incredible, it's an incredible archive, really. Wow. And um, also it's available in a lot of ebook reader formats for Kindle, Kindle Fire, uh, no, not you name not, it. They've done. not Kindle Fire because I tried to download a few of those. So whoever told you that, unless I can get them someplace else, because I was super excited to download it from my Kindle Fire. All right, but did, did you try from Project Aeon? I did not, but I did it on the uh, Amazon site. They make it for Kindle. Yes, they they did a Kindle version of the first three books. But I can download a Kindle Fire version from Project Aeon. Check it out. Um, I can't, I'm not 100% on that, but it's well worth you having a look. Definitely. Uh, well, because the books okay. on there are great because you can actually click on a book. It gives you everything's you know, transcribed there, but you can also play the book online. So you can yeah. you, you click on you – know, the way the game books work, just, in, just, just to get that really quickly, is you're reading a page and then you're presented with choices, and each single paragraph is numbered. And so it'll say, if you want to do this, go to page 32. If you want to do this, go to page 188. Then you flip through the book and you're going back and forth. Uh, and that's basically how you get to choose your own path through each book. And what Project Aeon's done is you just click on whatever choice you want and it just zaps you right to that section. It's incredible. And uh, it also updates all your stats as well. So you don't have to do any record keeping. It's oh, automatic. Great. It's incredible. I mean, that, that shows you the added value they brought to the whole you know, venture. Yeah, uh, they've done some. They've done some superb work, and uh, definitely, you know, deserve applause for that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, and um, it's helped it. You know, it's he it's helped its uh, longevity by by no by all means. Definitely. Well, now let's talk about the mechanics really quickly because one of the things that I love about the books is that everything is really easy to do. You know, you don't have there aren't a lot of numbers. It's it's really a watered down version of Dungeons and Dragons. You basically have an ability to fight and an ability to take damage and then various items. And that's the game. And you get to write it down. I always wrote it down on a piece of paper. I never wanted to write in the book, uh, which mm -hmm. I assume most people did. But you get to, you know, that's your character. And it's very easy. And then the way combat works is very simple. Now, how did you come up with the the random number table which is kind of like your hallmark uh and then the whole like fighting scenario like where do these mechanics come from well the random no number table came from the necessity of having a game system that didn't require dice mm. i wanted you to be able to buy the book and play the book without any you know anything else other than a pencil perhaps to keep a record um and well, I don't know, eureka moment number 273 perhaps <laughs> <laughs> Um, I've done a lot of design work on games anyway, so I, I kind of had a basic idea of what would work, what wouldn't work. Um, and I tested it, tried it. It was beautifully simple, you know, and, and the simple ideas are often the best. So if you can find something that's elegant and simple, that's always been my guideline. Mm -hmm. um, and that fitted the build quite nicely. Now, you can obviously use a D, uh, D10, a 10-sided dice, if you want, mm -hmm. uh, because you're generating numbers from 0 to 9, uh, with 0 being, you know, can be 0 or it can be 10, depending on the situations. 
um, but you're generating 10, 10 numbers at random. Um, I could go into the mechanics and the mathematics of that, which gives me advantage, but I won't because it's a little bit boring. <laughs> <laughs> but it's more, it's more akin with percentage chances rather than the bell curve chance a D6 gives. Oh, I got it. Bottom line, yeah, the bottom line is it's far more realistic. Oh, that makes sense. I mean, because you're working on, yeah, you're working on 10%, basically. Is exactly. Per, or it's chunks of 10%. Now, now you know that. When you, when you then get bonuses or deductions, oh, right. you see it's reducing or increasing your percentage chance of success. Exactly. Now that's, and that's probably why it feels so satisfying when you, you, know, when you succeed. No, that's very true. Uh, now, let me, let's talk about your writing process a little bit. Because you know, I wanted to quickly mention that your transition into video games is such a natural one because that's all you basically made computer games in book form where you get to everyone wants a personalized experience when they're playing a video game and they want the you know a lot of the games that you have there's a you know this the walking dead made this really great um, game where you get to make your own choices and everything that every choice that you make affects the future and future sequels it just stores it in the memory that's where yeah. we are now that's what you did in the 80s before computer software so it's a natural transition and along those lines what was your writing process because essentially you have to write six or seven different paths and then make sure that they can all kind of cross so you can start out on path a and end up on path e before the end of the book how did that yeah, work how did, you, how did you do that um well my try answer is magic <laughs> <laughs> proprietary <laughs> proprietary secret but it's no secret it's just it's just um being methodical and very careful with how you allocate numbers and doing the preparation. Typically, I spend 60% on preparation and 40% on writing. Mm -hmm. um, so the prep is everything for me. And during the preparation phase, um, I'm thinking very carefully of all the realistic options I can give to the reader and following those through in a logical way. Now, the danger is that you can branch out uh, to in too wide a pattern. You can it's very easy to just spread out in all directions and lose control of the story. So you have to bring it back to what I call rallying points. Now, these are pages that all readers will go through. Got it. And they're kind of like a checkpoint as well, because at that point I can feed the uh, vital information to the players, knowing they're all going to get that information. Um, and from there I can then branch it out again. Um, so it's if you imagine a page that has flowchart that's in sort of figures of eight that's kind of how oh, I got it. that's kind of what it looks like and um now there's i don't use i try and steer clear of formula so i don't use a formula for every book i write that would be you know that would be would be too obvious um so they are quite varied um and a good example of that would be um you cited book four as the one you started with mm -hmm. Well, if you can remember book five oh, i remember it one after mm -hmm. yeah shadow on the sand two books actually Two books in one, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> that's how it was marketed. It's right on the cover. <laughs> well, that's certainly how Pacer Books in the U.S. marketed it. Uh, that's not how I wrote it. Uh, <laughs> I didn't start with the premise or the idea of having two books in one. Um, oh, but the end was but the what rally I did was point. Def okay, I get it. It, it. it was a change of direction. Now, the, the funny thing about uh, book five, which makes it unique, is that mission is given to you as a mission to diplomacy. You've got to go to a country that was a former enemy and sign a peace treaty and hopefully everything will be okay. But everything changes immediately you set foot in that country. It's one big trap mm -hmm. um, and you're chased down as soon as you arrive. Um, 
Now, at the end of the first book, book or the first major part, first 200 sections, uh, you discover what's really going on. And then it, that generates a new quest. That generates a new circumstance. And that, you know, that's very much like a second book, really. Mm-hmm. But uh, the two are so close together, they, you know, they need to be published in one volume. Um, it was very much like Indiana Jones, that particular book, in a lot of different ways. Is that mm-hmm. on purpose? This just popped into my head now. Is that was that on purpose, or was that kind of accidental? No, I'd already planned book five well ahead, probably ahead of. Uh, I don't know when Indiana Jones first came out, but uh, I, don't, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't either. think I've. I don't think I've had any sort of. Uh, yeah, maybe they stole from you because it's very close. That's what I love about. Yeah. And this was, I mean, and these these all do. They predate the movies, but what I guess what I'm saying is, it has such an exciting action feel to it because you go there for one thing and then you're after an artifact that's in that you mm-hmm. have to, and you have you know one of the coolest things about that particular book is that not only are you in the book trying to collect items or everything like that there comes a point and I'm spoiling this for anyone but it, it's not going to spoil it you come to a point in the book where you have to figure out a clue and you have to solve the the mystery that's you know that on the every book comes with a map in the front cover and you have yeah. this this riddle that you have to solve and you have to solve the riddle because that this, the, the, the solution is the page you turn to, yes. <laughs> which is so brilliant. Well, that's a device I've used in various sort of shapes and forms. It's great. Um, the puzzles and the conundrums and the riddles are a, a trademark of Lone Wolf. And I've sort of worked those in throughout all of the, well, most of the books anyway. Um, and certainly in book 29, which I finished a couple of months ago, um, that's set in a country called Chai, which is very much like 14th century China. Mm. And their national pastime is riddles. So every tavern oh, you great. go into or every you know, hall you go into, there's the riddle master or the you know, count conundrum or whoever. <laughs> and they pose the riddles. The innkeeper takes a big you know, chunk of the money that's staked. And so there, is a lot of, there are a lot of riddles in that. Oh, that's great. Um, <laughs> now, I'd taken note of what my fans like, obviously, um, but it just so happens it was set in a country where that is the cultural norm. So um, it's true to the canon. It wasn't done specifically just to you know, put riddles in the book. Mm-hmm. That In that particular era, it's suited. So, um, gosh, I can think of several throughout. Um, and they often used to take me three or four hours to, to <laughs> work out. create. Yeah, because, um, you know... I've what I've done um, studiously really is to avoid any other uh, influences. So I've not read any other game books, choose your own adventure books. Um, I try not to read anybody else's material because I don't want to stoke up my subconscious with mm. stuff that you know I regurgitate um, later, mm-hmm. uh, sort of unwittingly. I read enough fantasy in my teenage years to la- last me a lifetime, quite frankly. And I suppose <laughs> I dip into that. Yeah, I kind of draw on that. Um, but I think ultimately I have a very, very clear Im- uh, idea of uh, a vision of what uh, the world of Magnum and the universe of Aeon is. Well, um, well, let's talk about that. I want to talk about some of the mythology to get people interested. But first, I want to ask just to close up the gap on the game books. Do you hmm. play test these? I mean, did people play test them? Did you, you know, like maybe you had a strand that was kind of dangling in the air that doesn't quite get you back to the right point? Or did you ever think about that? Well, that is, yeah, I deal with that in the in the uh, preparation phase. Mm, so okay. the core of the creative phase happens in the flow charting. 
So I'll have an overall, an overall idea of what the plot is, you know, what's to be achieved. Then I will just break that down in stages. So you typically would have 350 pages. I'll call them pages, but basically they're sections. Mm-hmm. And um, then I would divide that up um, into parts of the story. So perhaps uh, with a 350-section book and in sections zero to, uh, 1 to 50, it's a case of getting the mission and going from city A to city B. And then I would focus on those 50 sections and determine what happens to you in that that part of the book, mm. in that seventh of the book. Right. Um, and there may be two or three different ways of getting to B from there. But when I'm doing that, I'm plotting each section quite carefully, allocating numbers and being very, very, you know, careful to not duplicate them. And this prevents having these sort of uh, non secateurs, these, mm. uh, you know, unresolved links. Um, the, the key thing about doing that is when I prepare those sections, I do them in note form. So I'll have, you know, information I must feed to the reader, um, an outline of where the setting is, um, what time of day or night it is, just the general, general outline of what's going on there. Then I'll move on to the next bit and resolve that and so on and so on and do that until I've got the whole book mapped out. Mm. Now that often takes around about three to four weeks to do that stage. Um, now, by the time I finish that and go back to the beginning, this this process, what I call marination, takes place. Mm-hmm. It's been in my mind for three or four weeks. And now when I go back to it, I'm focusing on the prose, on creating, you know, describing this situation as best I can for the most dramatic effect. And because I already know what I'm going to say in those sections, I have the confidence to be able to do it without, you know, mm. feeling I have to make anything new up. Right. So it enables me to write with a certain authority, and that's that's become quite distinctive in my style. Uh, <laughs> you know where you are when you're reading my stuff. Yeah. You know, <laughs> write with confidence, you know. We'll never know. Yeah, write with confidence, yeah. <laughs> and um, that's how you do it. Um, and then I can enjoy it because I go back and I know what that section is going to be, and I can just sit back a bit and, you know, let it come to me in a sort of cinematic way uh, and enjoy the setting and then – um, like I say, try and describe it as best I can. Mm. Now, I have a little sort of guideline on that score as well. And I, my target is to um, have min- maximum impact with minimum words. Okay. Okay. Um, that's easy to trot out, but actually doing it is quite an art. Yeah, what does that mean? Uh, what it means... Um, trot it out. Say I, I, may use, I may use, say, 12 words in a sentence, oh. but they will conjure up a, a, a setting and a and a uh, environment that is you could have spent a thousand words describing right so it's very very effective use um of english basically mm. um and i'm just you know i'm very lucky to be pretty good at, at that tool of my trade english language did you now, did you uh, study uh, writing did you because it doesn't start so going from engineer to writer that's a kind of a, a deep deep jump you know yeah, it's kind of a strange situation. Yeah. Um, I was pretty good at English at, at uh, in college. Yeah. You speak it very uh, well, by the way, if that means anything. Well, <laughs> I'm English. What do you expect? Yeah, the Queen's English. <laughs> this is, yeah, they're called received, received pronunciation. This, this is how English should be spoken. Yes. Um, <laughs> and this, I, I must laugh. It's a, it's a huge advantage when I speak like this in, in the States. Mm-hmm. 
I can imagine. Everybody just sort of, yeah. I've had so many free suppers as a result of it. <laughs> <laughs> so many good invitations as well. Incredible. Um, so I, I'm glad you like, you know, how I speak. I do. It's great. But it's very much how I write as well. So um, I, I was very fortunate to have a good education and a very good English teacher. And taught me, you know, the essential basics of good grammar, um, but also sparked my imagination by introducing me to science fantasy at a key age, you know, 13, mm -hmm. 14. And I'm reading Tolkien as part of, you know, the books they were giving me at school. Mm -hmm. um, so nurtured, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, but I kind of went into a musical profession because I had the skills to do so, and it was a lot cooler, it seemed. <laughs> Everyone wants to be a rock star. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'd, I, I've always written and I've always had good feedback on my writing, uh, certainly in the early days of the campaign when I used to write the reports. Uh, the players were always keen and always you know, enjoyed what I'd written. And I'd sort of been encouraged to pursue that as well. But I had a big um, change of um, career around about 82. And I left the music industry and I joined the games industry professionally. Uh, I won a, I won a uh, major competition in the States in 82. Um, and that kind of gave me the credibility to actually pitch to a publisher mm -hmm. and be taken seriously. And like I said, you know, right place, right time with the right idea. And um, it all came good. Well, so let me ask you, I'm glad you touched on that because I forgot to mention it earlier. So you won a world, is it, was it a world D&D championship? Yeah, it was Origins in 82, which was in Baltimore. Um, the setup was like a tournament over a week and you played different characters in D&D &D at different levels. And as you uh, progressed through the stages, um, it finally ended up with, I think it was a, six of us on the final uh, group. And we were being judged. So there were you know, two or three judges there judging how well we played. And the final was played in a, a lecture auditorium in uh, Baltimore University. And it had an audience watching us play. Um, so so it, it was an interesting um, situation. Um, I don't think that's replicated or it's, I don't think we see anything like that nowadays. Well, it's very counterintuitive to, to role-playing because role-playing is usually group mentality. You play as a team you know, actually, to, to, to win, quote-unquote, at D&D &D has a very you know, pejorative term called munchkining. So the fact that there was a tournament that you won, I, how was that? And this is the early days of D&D &D where no one was trying to, you know, quote-unquote, win at it. Because it's not really something you win, you just enjoy. So I, 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 no, well, The criteria for winning was how well you played your character. Got it. And that's all subjective to a series of ju yeah. judges. And, you know, if you were playing a character that... Um, was a good team player and you played that well, then you were in the running for winning it. Oh, so good. it was a decision by the judges based on how well they f thought you played that character. That's incredible. Uh, yeah, it was, it was great fun. And uh, the, as you can imagine, the last game lasted about three hours or so, and it was very exciting. Yeah. Uh, certainly held everybody's attention. So you're a professional player and you then made your living being a creator. So you've been on both sides of that. At yeah, I'd... Well, in 82, I was sponsored to go out there by a game shop, and I was managing a game shop in London. Um, and this was at sort of the height of the golden age of D&D. &D. Mm -hmm. We were, you know, we, were set, we, we couldn't sell the stuff fast enough. There was just so much demand for it. 
Um, and so the shop thought it'd be a good idea to have me go out there and, you know, try my luck at this competition. Um, and that was, you know, it paid off very nicely for them and for me. I came back, like I say, mainly with the credibility. Uh, there wasn't any real money involved. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, just the kudos of winning it. And uh, I think I've still got the T-shirt here somewhere. Oh, will you send me oh, a yeah. picture of it? I, I could probably, yeah. I'm Please? pretty sure I've got it somewhere. Um, uh, extra points if you're wearing it, but you don't have to. But I was. Please. I I don't think. I I don't think it will fit me. (laughs) I've already promised. I'm promising the viewers right now that you're going to to send me a picture of you in that T-shirt. Well, no, I may send you a picture of the T-shirt. That's fair. That's fair. Honestly, I think it was size medium or something. (laughs) I'm definitely extra large these days. (laughs) It would look terrible. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's still. Yeah, I've still got it. I'm pretty sure. Great. Can't promise you 100, percent but uh, I'll see what I can do. All right. Great. Okay, so then I went back um, to London. Then I joined Games Workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, big company at the time. Yeah, getting big. Getting big. It was getting big. <clears throat> it too had it got the European license exclusive for Dungeons and Dragons, mm. uh, and it was growing very, very fast. And I joined the White Dwarf team, which was the magazine it produced, and mm-hmm. uh, did a lot of editorial work on that. Um, but I had Lone. I'd been working on Lone Wolf. And they knew I'd been working on Lone Wolf, and they made me an offer for Lone Wolf as a role-playing game. And unfortunately for them, the, the offer was so poor that <laughs> um, I, I, I was so annoyed by it, I just simply stood up, said no, resigned, and walked out. <laughs> just like that? How, what, just like that, yeah. Was just, I was so angry at them for the derisory sum they offered for you didn't even negotiate it was so insulting you didn't even negotiate it was so yeah it was so insulting Uh, (laughs) there were a few other factors involved like i knew what was really going on at the company and that they were about to sell out anyway so yeah so i kind of you know it was doubly derisory Mm -hmm. because they would you know um but it was the best possible thing that could have happened um because i i i left i decided to change the format to a solo role-playing campaign in books um, and then I, prepared, then I asked Gary Chalk, who's an artist at Games Workshop at the time, to join me and do the artwork for it. And we prepared some uh, page spreads for three publishers in London, which we then, which I then went and presented to them after they were done. Uh, now, remember, this is all pre-computer, so this is you know we were doing this the hard way, this. Uh, laying out text with Letraset and stuff like that, which you probably won't remember. But this is like, <laughs> if you know scratch cards, well, it's a similar process where you have to sort of scratch mm-hmm. the the letter onto the page. Yeah, You're yeah. doing that for a whole page. Yeah, it's not easy. Um, but we did two mock-ups of pages of how we'd like to you know, see them. And uh, I secured um, three interviews with three publishers in London. Um, who are all, you know, looking for something similar because um, uh, Steve, Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone had brought out Firetop Mounting, Warlock of Firetop Mounting, and that was doing great business. Mm-hmm. And so they thought, yeah, this is the next big thing. And they were looking out for someone like me to come along with that next big thing. So um, I didn't have any pushback on it, quite the reverse. They were all very keen. Um, but it does lead me to a, a, a rather lovely a- anecdote of a certain Friday that occurred. This crazy Friday? I went Friday? in to see the... This was, this was Frantic Friday. Frantic Friday. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now I went in to see three publishers on the Wednesday of this particular week. Mm-hmm. Showed them the spreads. Oh, they loved it. 
That's great. Thirsty was quiet because they were all talking amongst themselves about it and deciding what to do. And then at 9.30 on the Friday morning, the first phone call came in. And the first publisher um, made a pitch, okay, and wanted four books uh, for £4,000, okay. which at that time was around about $5,000. Okay. Okay. Now I'm thinking that's not, you know, this is back in 1983. So that was quite a, a decent amount. That's quite a nice amount of money then. Yeah. You know, the average wage um, at that time was around about $12,000 a year. So to come in with a pitch oh, wow. of five. Yeah. Significantly less insulting than the one Game Workshop offered you. Uh, yeah. Half a percent. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Please. And half a percent of the net, not, a, not the gross oh, wow. either. You can, make net, you can make net zero. Trust me, I work in exactly. the film industry. And that's exactly what they had in mind. So <laughs> I, I knew where I stood with them. Wow. Um, yeah, wow. How bad is that? That's okay. Um, so I've got Frantic Friday, yeah. 9.30. Mm-hmm. First offer, £5,000. Okay. And then over the course of the day, every half an hour or every 35, 40 minutes, another <laughs> call would come in for another publisher. And I'm sort of... You know, I'm umming and ahhing, and so, well, I must think about it. You know, I've had another offer from X, Y, and Z, yeah. and uh, they've increased their offer, and the terms are now this. I said, no, don't sign, don't sign. Give us a bit of time. I'll, I'll check this out, and we'll get back to you. And that's how they were all reacting to it. Wow. Okay. So it started at five thousand pounds at nine thirty in the morning, uh, and then I finally agreed to a deal at about four thirty that afternoon for one hundred thousand pounds. Wow. You're like the prettiest girl at the ball. It was amazing. That's incredible. It was an amazing experience. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> I wish I had a frantic Friday. And that was like six times my annual weight. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to laugh because uh, friends and family were saying, well, you don't want to give up your day job. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I've just had an offer for like six or seven years money in advance with no strings attached. I d- wow. As long as I deliver the goods, I don't have to pay back the money. Yeah. I'd be crazy not to say yes. <laughs> That's it. And that was, uh, and then, that was it. Yeah. After that, it just went ballistic. Yeah. I mean, the sales figures are astronomical by today's comparison. Oh, yeah. But then you must remember that publishing was huge at that time. Mm-hmm. It was pretty much books and very little else. Right. Um, so when book one and book two were released together in the summer of 84 in the UK, um, in the first week, they each sold 100,000 copies. Wow. Just in the UK. Whoa, that's um, that's insane. I mean, those are it's insane, isn't it? When you consider that you know these days, uh, sales of twenty thousand will get you into the top three of right. the bestseller list. Yeah, this is incredible. And this isn't even uh, the world. This is a small. I mean, the UK is a smaller country population. Oh, absolutely. That's those are yeah. gigantic numbers. Uh, incredible. Um, and so the publishers were absolutely delighted, weren't they? They, they pretty much got their advance back in no time I at know. all. A dollar a book. They already paid their advance. <laughs> It was like they were so happy. But then, you know, Eureka number 238 came along. And uh, <laughs> I, what really changed it was the demand from foreign publishers. Mm-hmm. Now, I was in I, America. I amazing. Yeah, America. Mm-hmm. America was calling. Sure. Um, and Pacer Books made the offer to um, – I was with Hutchinson at the time, the English company. Um, and they came in and – they made uh, an offer that was pretty much the same as the English advance, but in dollars. Now, I was very lucky that the dollar exchange rate was 104 to a pound. Mm-hmm. So one pound equal 104, $1.04. Four cents. Mm-hmm. And it's about the lowest it's ever been. Mm-hmm. So the timing there was immaculate, yeah. but none of my doing. Um, 
and then suddenly Germany, and then France, Italy, Spain, and just everybody was, you know, signing this series up. Well, then you got translation and, things going on there too, though, because if you're in the states and you're in, you know, English-speaking countries, it's a little different. Uh, oh, massive translations! Yeah. Yeah, I think in total, I've had, um, I think it's something like twenty-two translations selling in forty territories. Yes. But the the what brought it home to me when I sort of realised how publishing works is that it's these foreign advances that authors really make their money. Mm-hmm. Um, the initial one sort of pays off the initial advance. But I was getting, you know, I was getting fifty percent of everything that was coming in after that. Jeez. Yeah, absolutely. That's incredible. So, I mean, you can't make a deal like that absolutely now. Absolutely incredible. <laughs> absolutely incredible. How much incredible. are you worth? Jeez, you must be like you must own the country. Are you? No, Prime <laughs> Minister Deaver. Uh, the other side of the coin is that the uh, income tax rate was sixty percent in the UK. <laughs> oh, they got their piece, didn't they? Oh, so swings and roundabouts. Yeah, I, I jokingly say there is a there is a wing of my local hospital that I, I built at some time. But uh, I, you know, I don't begrudge it. That's incredible. Now, now you mentioned Gary Chuck, so we're we're coming to the end here, and I want to talk about some of your things that are coming up. Um, so you mentioned Gary Chuck. Did you, he has a war game that he's designed? I hope with your permission. I hope I'm not bringing up mm. anything awkward here. No, no, no. no. Um, but it's, it was a Kickstarter campaign about a year ago. And so I don't know yeah. if you've played it. I mean, it's a war game. It's right up your alley and it's in your world. Yeah, it's a board game. Um, when Gary and I split in 86, I gave him the rights to do a lone wolf board game. Okay. Another altruistic uh, gen- uh, gesture. <laughs> 30 years um, later, he'd <laughs> 30 years later, he finally got around to actually doing something with it. Uh, <laughs> Um, but no, I've been closely involved with that in a funny sort of way. I've you know, given him permission to use my trademark. I've created characters for the ball game. Oh, cool. Um, I was heavily involved in the editing of it and the checking of it. Um, and if you check out the PDF and, you know, I've got credits all over the place there. Mm-hmm. I mean, very you know, kindly acknowledge my contribution to it. And I wish him the very best with it. It's, um, basically a war game that's kind of half old school war game and half chess okay so it's on a gridded board and the pieces have limited movements what they can do you know like chess chess pieces mm-hmm. um and it's set in it's set in lone wolf in book one okay, okay. so it's a it's kind of a uh, we're introducing something that could have happened on the journey from the kai monastery to the capital of Holmgar. oh it's just a big it's fight enough. on the bridge uh, it's not. It's not uh, the Battle of Alima Bridge. No, okay. it's another fight that you know is feasible for it to have happened, but I didn't document. See, I'm a fan. I told you. <laughs> I you know, know it. this stuff. You know it. <laughs> um, something of, that may be of interest uh, is that um, I, currently the Lone Wolf books are being brought out as a collector's edition. This is hardcover, you know, top quality editions. I've seen those. Yeah. And when we launched that in 2007, I rewrote book one. Um, and added another 200 sections to it to make it 550 sections long. Oh, wow. And it's um, it's got an awful lot more to it. And this time you don't start with being punished by being sent out of the monastery to collect firewood. Oh, uh, what? Uh, yeah, <laughs> That's it, the best it, yeah. intro. Oh, this is – the intro is slightly different. Oh. Uh, this time the, the your tutor – um, says you need more weapons practice and you've got to get up before dawn and join him in the training park and go through you know, some extra sword training and the like. Now this puts you right in a key position when the invasion starts, mm-hmm. when the attack begins. 
Um, I then I met one of uh, my US friends, well, US uh, fans at GenCon, and he said he'd just got hold of the uh, European import and read it. And he said the, the first half hour of reading that, that book was like watching the first half hour of Saving Private Ryan. Oh, really? <laughs> he oh, said the intensity of the combat and how quickly it comes upon you was just breathtaking. Oh, wow. So it's a very different beginning. I like the klutzy beginning, though. I will tell you that, just as a absolutely, yeah. You can't, can't, you can't take anything away from the original. Yeah. But I'd, for many years, I'd, what had been bothering me was the fact that I'd never shown you what it was like to be a kai mm-hmm. in the monastery, among yeah. other kai. True. Okay, and I really wanted to sort of convey that, mm-hmm. and this was the best way of doing it. Yeah, it does that really well. And uh, yeah, it's really, it's hugely dramatic. And uh, if you can get hold of a copy of. Uh, the extended version, it's called. What I fondly call the director's cut. I'm going to look for that. Yeah, you, you won't be disappointed. And um, we are currently reprinting the back catalogue of the collector's edition because the early ones have completely sold out. So that will be up for, that should be available by early next year when they hit the streets again. Okay. And, yeah. and you're also working with Cubicle 7 about a role-playing game, so this has come full circle, right? Gosh, and there's 101 things in between as well. Uh-huh. Um the big breakthrough recently has been the app that I developed, um, oh. Jody vs. Lone Wolf. Uh, first game is called Blood on the Sand, and it's in four parts. Yes. Came out in November uh, 2013 mm-hmm. and completed around November last year. Um, it's been hugely successful. I'm absolutely delighted with it. And I think we're. I had an email from the uh, developers saying we're nudging two and a half million downloads now. No kidding. No, it's been fantastic. And uh, it's brought a whole um, wave of new people into Lone Wolf. So we've seen a surge at Project Aeon with downloads of the books. So everybody you know, wants to know more about it. And their first taste has been the app. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. It's a great, and it's a great game. It's both text-based and combat fighting. Like you go down Absolutely. and you're doing all the intimate fighting, turn-based fighting system. Yeah, it's nothing quite like it. Uh, yet again, another another original mm-hmm. where you have um, text-based adventure that you're reading through, and then when you come to the combats, that kind of dissolves into a into a two D combat that's akin to a console experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never get I never get tired of the transition. It's fantastic, isn't it? It's really great. The page, the page sort of stops on an illustration. The illustration dissolves into the full, yeah. you know, rendered image in high definition. It's a pretty cool transition. I got, it is pretty cool. Because it looks like the, the – because what it does is it brings your mind to the book, which is what you want to do is create your imagination. Take the picture that you see and bring it to life. And mm. it, that's exactly what it does. It takes that picture and just brings it to life. And it's such an amazing – it's an amazing transition. Yeah. And then, you, of course, you get to play as you would in a, in a regular computer game. Yeah. Um, it was brought out for smartphones and tablets initially, but it's now available for PC and Macs hmm. via Steam. Oh, yeah, okay, good, good. Yeah. And every now and again, they do a special. So look out for the specials, and you can get it, snap it up for a really good price. You're not going to tell people to wait till it's full price? Because you get a little bit of kick on that, or no? No, I'm, I'm, I'm true to form. I like <laughs> Altruistic. You really are. You really are. Why don't you give it to everyone for free? Everyone who's listening to this podcast will get a download on Joe Deaver. (laughs) We'll charge it. Don't wait too long. (laughs) (laughs) Right for the next five seconds. Uh, It's and so you're working on that in the RPG. What else are you working on? 
the well, you touched on uh, the Cubicle Seven mm. thing, which is why I was in at Gen Con uh, a couple of weeks ago and to launch that in the US. Uh, and that is a, a regular role playing game uh, in a box set. Now, the advantages that this has is that it was financed by a very successful Kickstarter late last year. We needed around about uh, $20,000 to get it up and running, um, but it was we dragged in about 120000 in the end, and we've put every cent of that back into the production. So it's full color, um, highly detailed, uh, and at a fantastic retail price. I mean, it's selling for twenty nine ninety five, oh, wow. uh, which is fantastic. It's, it's designed as a game that's ideal for beginners and really when you open the box you can be playing within 10 minutes that was our target um but it's also got to satisfy the old guard it's got to satisfy existing rpgs mm-hmm. uh gamers and to do that we ran the advanced rules parallel to the simple rules and then also on your action chart it shows up as well so you can incorporate advanced rules as and when you feel ready to so if you're a seasoned gamer you can you can jump straight in and ha- you know incorporate everything but if you really are a beginner, then you start with the basics and your games master, or we call them narrators, when your narrator thinks you're ready for it, it will introduce additional rules. Hmm. Uh, and then you, as you su- su- successfully uh, complete adventures, you get uh, rank upgrades, very similar to the book. Oh, uh, the combat's very similar to the book as well. Uh, it touches on what we started with. It's the old random number table. Mm-hmm. We've translated that into, uh, in the box lid, top and bottom, there is a random number table. And you have counters that represent you as a character. And on each counter, both sides, there's a tiny little white arrow. And you flip the token into the box, and immediately you get a random number generator. (laughs) It's great. But what what is really neat is if you're playing the narrator, so you're throwing in three or four enemies against a group of players, you can throw in four tokens and immediately you can see what the result is. Why do you hate dice so much, sir? What, what is your... I don't. I really don't. I really don't. I'm a, I'm a big dice fan. It's just that we wanted a tangible link to the game Oh, books. that makes sense. Okay. Okay. Something really recognizable. Yeah. Something, you know, an homage, if you like. Sure. And then in the process of creating that, we realized, wow, this is a really good system um, for generating numbers quickly. Um so we went with it and play tested it forever, it seems. And yes, it works. Oh, works really well. Great. So I had the pleasure of demoing that to a lot of fans at Gen Con. Um, and with the result that we sold out completely by Saturday. Oh, that's incredible. So every copy we had went. Even the demo copy went. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Did you sell that for more no or did kidding. you? No, no. We sold it for the same price. Oh. And, and the guy was so happy to have secured a copy. Oh, imagine so. Uh, and we got pre-orders as well. So there are people that... Um, paid for um, the game, even though we'd sold out. And they're treated as a priority, obviously. We will get them their game as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, it could not have been better. We had a very, very successful Gen Con. That's great. And um, it was a fantastic opportunity for, to meet all the fans. And <clears throat> typically they were sort of 40 to 45-year-olds um, because they were sort of 11 to 15-year-olds back in '85. And they've grown up with the series. Mm-hmm. And now they've got families of their own and they're introducing them to the books. And a lot of them brought their old books with them, which were in a much worse state than you describe yours. <laughs> they were falling to pieces. You know, they'd been played, erased and played uh-huh. hundreds of times. Yeah. And so they were, you know, 
barely hanging together, but it was a delight to sign. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and everyone had the same story. They all knew exactly where they were when they first read a Lone Wolf book. Mm-hmm. They all stuck. They all uh, stayed with it and uh, continued. Uh, they all cherished their collections, and they're all now keen to pass on that experience to their children. Um, in the best possible way, because they're kind of bonding with their kids even more mm-hmm. by reading the sections to them, and the kids are making the choices. Oh, that's great. So it's, yeah, it's a fantastic experience for them. Yeah. So it was really, yeah, a very heartwarming experience to have so many for hundreds, literally. No, uh, no exaggeration, there were hundreds of Lone Wolf fans came to say hello at Gen Con. And you're crossing um, the generational gap as well. Yeah, uh, most definitely. And that is, you know, very um, satisfying. Um, I had one one guy turn up. I didn't know who he was, but he was definitely a fan. Very, very keen. He'd bought all the books. He'd bought all the imp- imports as well. So he had book 21 to 28 on import. Very knowledgeable. We spoke for probably the best part of 20 minutes on the minutiae of the series. You know, <laughs> knew, all, knew all the details and everything and was really well informed on it. And um, we had a really in-deep conversation. That's fine. Signed his copy of the game, uh, had some photos taken uh, for him. Yeah. And I, I noticed there's an unusual number of people gathered to take photos <laughs> for this. But I, nothing, I, the penny hadn't dropped at that time. Yeah. So he went on his way, okay, and then suddenly everybody from Cubicle 7 uh, every, and, and around the table rushed at me. I said, do you know who that is? Wow. I said, no, I have the faintest idea it is. He said, it's Will Wheaton. Oh, now, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah really. I, I had no idea who this guy He's was. He's coming up to you, too. He's really popular here in the States. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. As I found out after the event. But it was wonderful because it was just so natural. So was there like an awkward moment where you thought the line was waiting to take pictures with you, and then it turns out they were all chasing Will Wheaton? <laughs> no, it didn't really register because there was a lot of people taking photos, yeah. okay? But there just seemed an awful lot more people taking photos. Yeah. And I kind of thought, I thought the you know, the lenses aren't really focusing on us. They're focusing on him. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of busy at the, with, in the moment, so I'd kind of dismiss that. But afterwards, all these things drop into place, and I think, oh, now I know why. Yeah. Um, but he's become quite uh, evangelical about the game. It's amazing. He was uh, – I've been sent photos of him walking around Gen Con the next day on the Sunday, holding the game and – you know, proselytizing about it, as it were, um, telling how good it is to all his fans. Yeah. So thank you, Will. That's really, you know, wonderful. I'm delighted you enjoy it. Yeah, thank you, Will. Um, and for now, now I've, you know, checked out YouTube and seen all the back episodes of uh, Big Bang Theory with him in it. Yeah. And, and I have a better idea of who he is, of course, now. Yeah, he's, um, and he's on Star Trek and all that stuff. Indeed, yeah. Uh, well, we're coming to the end here, Mr. Deaver. Um, how okay. can people get in touch with you? Okay, well, the easiest way to um, let me think. The easiest way is Facebook, basically. Okay. Now, if you um, if you search for me on Facebook, there's not many Joe Devers around, mm-hmm. so you'll find it. But it's uh, it's it's uh, Joe fifty is the address. Um, I'm maxed out on friends, but I suggest you follow me. Yeah, you can have. A, you don't have a fan page. Uh, no, I don't. Oh. I try to keep things very personal. Oh, okay. But there are, there are obviously limitations, like 5,000 friends is the limit. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm on Facebook every day. Really, it's a fantastic forum for me to, you know, chat with my fans. Okay. And all news breaks there first. 
Oh, no kidding. Okay. Yeah. I'll put a so link to that. Check, check that out. And if you scroll down and have a look at the previous uh, postings, you'll just see how much detail, how much wealth of detail there is there. Mm-hmm. News about releases in all the other countries, um, especially Italy, a huge following in Italy. Um, other projects, um, lots of art, lots of maps. Oh, great. Yeah, a wealth of detail there. Um, all right, so I will send everyone to this Facebook page. They can get up to date. Um, this has been a pleasure, Joe. This is uh, Thanks, incredible. Um, so I hope I hope I bring a whole new generation of fans to you, and that when I come up to you and talk to you, that people will take pictures of you, and they will stop taking pictures of me because I'm sick of being harassed in the streets. So <laughs> hopefully, we'll turn the tables. <laughs> oh, we're, we're, I'll do my best to make that happen. Thank you, thank you. Uh, all right, well, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Deaver. My pleasure. All right. And thank, every, you very thank you to everyone for listening. Have a good night.